0: listening to Dairy Voice, a podcast exclusively for the dairy industry.
1: Welcome to Dairy Voice. This is your host, Joel Hastings, and we're delighted to have with us on this episode uh, a young dairy producer from Wisconsin, Brittany Olson from Barron County. Uh, She came to our attention with something she'd written, and uh, we're going to talk about her writing in a bit, but we're going to open by welcoming her. Brittany, thanks for joining us.
0: Thank you for having me, Joel. It's a pleasure.
1: Brittany, tell us a little bit about your farming activities there in Barron County, northwest Wisconsin.
0: So my husband and I are fifth generation dairy farmers on his family's farm about 10 minutes west of Chittac. So like you said, Barron County in the southeastern part of the county, we milk about 50 cows and farm about 200 acres. Registered Holsteins and a few registered jerseys were transitioning to more of a regenerative model. We, we started incorporating rotational grazing two years ago. And we're making our way into more no-till farming, and should be planting our first cover crop after corn silage comes off this year.
1: Let's let's talk about regenerative. That's a that's an exciting word. Uh, some people say it's uh, already reached the uh, ho hum category, but that's an important concept. Tell us a little more about how you and your husband think about that, and why you're moving in that direction.
0: So, in 2018, milk prices, particularly in the spring, were looking pretty ugly, and we thought we have all this acreage that would make great pasture that's already divided up to use as pasture that we haven't used. Why not get the most out of our acres and reduce our dependence on purchase feed? And we started grazing in mid-May of that year and haven't looked back.
1: I can recall talking with another dairy producer in northern Wisconsin who was a little more skeptical of grazing. He said he hadn't gotten his cows to eat snow yet. So, (laughs) so... uh, how are you doing that in a, in a part of the world that gets a pretty severe winter? How, how do you transition your feeding? What, what's your strategy?
0: So our pastures typically aren't ready to graze until about mid-May because they need time to come back from five months of winter. Our grazing t- season is typically from May to October. We've been able to extend it into November, but it's about six months out of the year we've got cows on pasture.
1: And then you make some dry hay or haylage, corn silage. What's your winter time? dry hay and corn program. silage. And you put that, you put your silage up in an upright silo still or do you have a, you use a bunker?
0: Uh, upright silos. We've got two upright silos for corn silage and one upright silo for high moisture shell corn.
1: What sort of production levels are you able to obtain?
0: So when we're feeding corn silage, our production's usually about 55 to 60 pounds a day. But right now the pastures are starting to decline as the weather gets colder and we don't have any corn silage right now, so we're at, at about that 45 to 50 pounds per cow per day range. Our components are a uh, 4-1 butter fat and a 3-1 protein, and our cell count's usually under 100,000.
1: And it sounds like you and your husband maybe are doing most of the work, or is his yes. family involved too?
0: His mom still does the bookwork because as a writer, I hate numbers, and <laughs> my <laughs> husband doesn't have the time for it. So mother-in-law does the bookwork. She's wonderful. And my father-in-law helps out with a lot of the tractor driving and field work yet.
1: Dairy farmers know that the better they take care of their cows, the better their cows take care of them. And that's why we at Virtus Nutrition launched Energy 3 with Omega-3s, the healthy fat supplement that has many of the same fatty acids that are found in olive oil and salmon to help cows stay healthy and productive. Visit VirtusNutrition.com to learn more. That's virtus So very much a family operation. Yes. Where do you ship your milk?
0: So we ship to DFA.
1: Is there a plant nearby or where, where does your milk actually go?
0: It goes all over the place because DFA doesn't have a plant in the area. Sometimes it'll go to Kemp's St. Paul for bottling. Sometimes it'll go over to the AMPI plant in Jim Falls, Wisconsin to be made into cheese. Sometimes it'll go down to Katie Cheese in Wilson, Wisconsin to be made into cheese.
1: You mentioned that both you and your husband are fifth generation. Where where did you grow up and, and talk a little bit about your family background?
0: So I grew up in central Wisconsin, but my dad grew up on a small dairy farm just northwest of Madison. They milked about 30 cows and then expanded to 60 cows in the 70s when my grandpa installed the pipeline. And then my uncle took over the farm in the 80s. I was there a lot as a kid. And then when I turned six, my uncle died and the cows were sold. And it was The cows leaving was almost as painful for my family as my uncle dying, and that that was just something that stayed with me because I spent a lot of my formative years on the farm helping my dad, not realizing until I was much older that my dad was doing a lot of the chores because my uncle was too sick to do them.
1: And then uh, you went to high school and then on to college?
0: Yep. I graduated from UW-River Falls in 2016 with a bachelor's degree in marketing communications with an agriculture emphasis, and a minor in agricultural business.
1: Were you married as you got out of school, or did you start in on a, on a, uh, some sort of career, first, first job out of college?
0: My first job out of college was writing for Dairy Star, covering their northwestern Wisconsin territory. Got married out of college two weeks later. Sam and I were college sweethearts.
1: So you wrote for Dairy Star, and then how has your writing continued? In
0: 2018, that was also the year that I left a left my role at Dairy Star to focus on working on, you know, farming full-time because trying to work full-time and farm full-time was just getting to be too much. And I figured that, you know, a job will come and go, but the farm is always here. And why work two jobs 16 hours a day when I can just work one job 16 hours a day?
1: (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. Stay focused, right?
0: (laughs) Yep. Priorities.
1: (laughs) You mentioned you have registered cattle. Um, are you involved with the with the state or even national holstein associations?
0: I think we're more involved locally. We we've got a lot of registrations to get caught up on yet for holsteins and Jerseys. So when that when that's all taken care of this fall and winter, then I think we'll be more involved on the state level.
1: And Wisconsin Holstein group is is very active and and uh, lots of fun too.
0: Oh, lots and lots of fun.
1: You've got some neighbors there in Barron County who have been very successful in registered Holstein's, the, the, the uh, Indian head Holstein's folks, and there are others too in the neighborhood, pretty active Holstein group there.
0: Yep, there's a lot of very talented and very gifted breeders in our county.
1: What sort of uh, genetic strategy do you have?
0: Balance and functional type, because a cow that is bred for balance will do well in any setting, whether it's in a free stall or in a tie stall or on pasture.
1: And I presume you're in a conventional tie stall setup?
0: Yep. Our, the oldest part of our barn, which was built in 1902, was converted to have mostly tie stalls in 2013, and the rest of our barn is still in stanchions yet.
1: And so you've got uh, around the barn pipeline and, and a conventional barn setup, obviously. Yep. Well, tell, tell us a little bit more about some of your writing projects.
0: So after I started farming, exclusively farming full-time, I should say, I started freelancing for Progressive Dairy that summer. And then a few other publications here and there. And my friend, Danielle Eddick, who is the communications director for Wisconsin Farmers Union, asked if I'd come on board with their Rural Voices project. That that was earlier this summer and gave me some of the deadlines. And sure, yeah, I can, I can help with that. I, I like writing and I'm a member of the organization. I'm a member of Farm Bureau as well. And I have a lot of friends in both organizations. And I like to play devil's advocate for both organizations too. So, got on board writing for Farmers Union earlier this summer and have had a lot of fun with it. Wrote one previous article on consolidation particularly in dairy earlier in the summer, and then I wrote this piece on supply management and didn't expect it to quite take off like it did.
1: Let's uh let's jump into that. First before we do though, let's let's talk about a little bit about your Farmers Union and your farm bureau organizational activity. Are you you're, you're helping with their communications. Are you involved in any other committees or do you go to local meetings regularly? How, how are you involved?
0: So aside from the writing aspect, that's about the extent of my involvement with Farmers Union. I'm a little bit more involved with Farm Bureau since Sam is on the board of directors and go to yearly meetings for Farm Bureau. And like I said, a lot of friends in both organizations that I talk to fairly regularly.
1: Uh, let's talk just for a moment about Sam. He was. At River Falls while you were there, and that's where you met, I presume.
0: Yep. He graduated in 2014.
1: Did he go back to his family farm immediately, or did he have another detour, have a detour on the way?
0: He came back immediately.
1: Well, let's jump into uh, the piece that we're going to publish in our October 5th issue. Uh, We've been given permission to use it as well. It's got kind of an interesting headline and uh, a little bit of an irreverent attitude, I'd say, which we don't always see in our dairy publications. Talk a little bit about, about your view of the piece and kind of uh, what prompted your uh, writing.
0: I knew I was going to tackle supply management for this particular article, but I wasn't sure about the angle that I was going to take. And then one morning, I happened to be scrolling through Wisconsin Ag Connection while having my morning coffee before going out to the barn, and I came across this piece on cherries restricting some of their production to keep farm prices in line for cherry growers. And I thought, huh. Why can't we make this happen for dairy? What
1: a what a concept, actually producing for a market.
0: Exactly. And not trying to export our way out of low prices and actually taking demand into consideration. Supply and demand, I should say.
1: You mentioned in the piece uh, some other examples of, of marketing agencies, too, which... Um, We've seen here in California, we have a whole raft of marketing agencies, not all geared toward uh, production quantities, but uh, oftentimes marketing. It's certainly not an unfamiliar concept.
0: No. What I thought was interesting about um, the National Cherry Board restricting about a third of their production was that that percentage that's held in reserve, as they call it, can only be used for exports or for new product research and development or new market research and development. And that's something I'd like to see happen in dairy, where a lot of times the exports are like the tail of a dog. The dog should wag its tail. The tail shouldn't wag the dog. And while I agree with a lot of experts that exports have opened up a lot of markets and opportunities for American dairy farmers, they have also made markets much more volatile because with the trade war, it's not really a market we can count on like we have.
1: Trade wars and pricing and production in other regions, all are factors for sure.
0: Mm -hmm. And with an export driven market, the lowest cost producer is frequently the winner. And I'll tell you right now, farms that look a lot like mine with little red barns and silos and cows on pasture are not low cost producers. And that will lead to further and further consolidation in the dairy industry in this country.
1: We had uh, the Secretary of Agriculture last year, like just about a year ago at World Dairy Expo, make some statements about that in terms of farm size, and cost of production. That got a lot of attention in uh, Wisconsin and the Midwest, actually nationally. And uh, you you make reference to that too in your article.
0: I think he's probably the first um, Ag Secretary since probably Earl Butts to make remarks in that vein and not keep them quiet.
1: The big get bigger and the small go out. I think right. paraphrasing.
0: Yep. And a lot of times people will say they've been taken out of context when they've got caught saying something, you know, in the wrong audience, such as, in Madison during World Dairy Expo when dairy farmers have, paid, have faced um, consecutive years of below break-even prices.
1: I think the point of your article was not necessarily to recommend a particular strategy or marketing approach, but simply to advocate for the notion that there are issues here beyond socialism or a Canadian system that you invite folks to think about.
0: Exactly. I I wasn't trying to make a case for any particular plan or program because there's a lot of them out there between various organizations. But just to get people thinking about what supply management could look like in this country or what socialism really means, because a pretty common argument, as I referenced in the article, is that any kind of supply control is socialist, especially when mandated by the government. It's like that scene from The Princess Bride where Inigo Montoya says, you keep using that word, I don't think that means what you think it means. (laughs) And (laughs) the billions and billions of dollars doled out this year alone are pretty dang socialist, in my opinion.
1: Well, even though they're extremely helpful and often necessary, they are still dollars flowing from the government to the private sector, that's for sure.
0: Exactly. And while the extra money is nice, and I'm I'm definitely going to take free money from the government when they're stupid enough to hand it out, it's not what we need.
1: Well, Brittany, another element of this uh, changing farm scene consolidation, if you will, particularly in Wisconsin, but also in the Northeast and the upper Midwest, is the fact that Families like yours and your parents and grandparents really are the backbone of of many local rural communities. Uh, You mentioned that your husband is on the board of directors of Farm Bureau, but we know that church groups, volunteer fire companies, uh, civic groups, local government uh, elected officials oftentimes are supported and are dairy folks, dairy producers Mm -hmm. and their families. Absolutely. A lot
0: of people in agriculture complain that, you know, people don't know farmers anymore. Well, that's because there aren't any farmers left for people to know. A lot of people like to make it a big versus small argument for dairy. And I can definitely see how that would be the case. But some kind of supply management program that's uniquely American and not a, a mirror to Canada's system, which is pretty restrictive and quite honestly, very expensive to make it work. It would preserve farm sizes across the spectrum because I think that whether you're milking 40 cows, 400 cows, 4,000 cows, or even 40,000 cows, we could all benefit from reduced volatility in the marketplace.
1: In fact, that diversity, uh, I've heard several national leaders say that uh, whether it's in the export field or simply as we've come through this pandemic and seen the challenges to the food system, it, it gives us a little more diversity and flexibility in our, in our food systems.
0: Oh, for sure. And I feel like if dairy doesn't make a, some kind of a commitment to coordinate supply with demand better, in the years to come this is kind of the last stop before dairy becomes vertically integrated and vertical integration is like we've seen with pork and poultry is efficient until it's not as we saw pretty plainly this spring with thousands of hogs and chickens euthanized because they couldn't make it to market good point and, Go and i don't think that's something we want for dairy
1: well the challenge has always been that uh dairy farmers like you and your husband whether it's 60 cows or 6,000 cows, you're producing a product that needs to be sold every single day, yep. and often the buyers don't need to buy it every single day, and mm-hmm. uh, that is a fundamental challenge to our system for sure.
0: Because dairy is so finely tuned with, whether it's, with, with demand, whether it's retail or export, it only takes a 1% or 2% swing in either direction in milk supply to have a huge increase on milk prices.
1: Yeah, it's a huge impact, that's for sure.
0: And from a processor standpoint, I think it would really benefit processors as well to know exactly how much milk is coming in. So they're not brokering or trying to shuffle milk out to various plants because they're running over 100% capacity all the time
1: plenty of challenge. As we finish up here, let's just circle back to the farm that you and your husband and your family are working on. You're moving toward more grazing, uh, a a regenerative pattern, if you will. That's not necessarily what everybody is up to, but we often hear that uh, smaller farms need to have some sort of niche or some sort of strategy to keep them economically viable. And I presume that's what you and your husband are up to here.
0: Exactly unless we see major changes in dairy pricing, you're either going to compete on niche or you're gonna compete on scale. And when you're as small as we are, we're not gonna be able to compete on scale and we're okay with that. So we're going to compete on quality and we're going to compete on a niche.
1: I think that's a a good thought here for us to end on. And we really appreciate you taking some time to visit with us today, Brittany.
0: Thank you for having me, Joel. I really appreciate the opportunity.
1: And we are including your article uh, in our October 5 issue of Dairy Business Digital Magazine, and we appreciate your uh, sharing that with us. Thank you. We're speaking today on Dairy Voice with Brittany Olson from Chautauqua, Wisconsin. Thank you, Brittany. This is Joel Hastings for Dairy Voice at dairybusiness.com.